welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. It's great seeing everybody. And I want to say a special welcome to our mothers in the room. Today, of course, is Mother's Day, and so we're glad you're here. And we pray for you all the time as you continue to raise kids or grandkids, whoever. We're just so grateful for you as you bring your children up in our Lord. And we are a campus, we are a church that meets in more than one location. We have a campus out of Stone Canyon. They're meeting right now. So as others who will join us later online. So if you guys here at North Garnett Wood, would you put your hands together and welcome them into our time of study here today? Well, last Saturday, last Saturday afternoon, actually, my family sat down to watch the greatest two minutes in sports. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The Kentucky Derby. I know it doesn't surprise you that my family watched the Kentucky Derby. We do it every year. The first Saturday in May was always a big deal for us. Uh, I remember as a kid, we'd have derby parties and get together and celebrate the derby. Always a big deal. So my family, we sat down and we watched it. And as we were watching the Derby, they were showing clips of past horse races. And they were talking about how the names of horses can be kind of comical. Anybody watch the Derby, by the way? Let me just see. Show of hands. Okay, so if you did, you may have seen this clip. Because they were showing this horse race that took place about 10 years ago or so. And there were two horses that had some funny names. One was named, My Wife Knows Everything. And the other horse was named, The Wife Doesn't Know. And they were neck and neck for first place. And it was hilarious listening to the commentator call this race. Take a look at this clip. On the far outside, The Wife Doesn't Know is moving up. And is now fourth and right alongside of My Wife Knows Everything. My Wife Knows Everything and The Wife Doesn't Know are moving together on the far turn. And they're coming after Lady Mutata coming to the quarter pole. Lady Mutata in front. Here come My Wife Knows Everything. And the wife doesn't know on the far outside. Little Miss Macho is fourth or into the stretch. Lady Mutata, my wife knows everything. Center of the track, the wife doesn't know. Into the final furlong, my wife knows everything. The wife doesn't know. They're one, two. Of course they are. My wife knows everything in front. To the outside, the wife doesn't know. My wife knows everything. The wife doesn't know. My wife knows everything. More than the wife doesn't know. Whew. I thought that was great. It was perfect to show on Mother's Day. Because let me tell you something. When it comes to raising our kids, my wife knows everything. And I know nothing whatsoever. Well, whether you watch the Derby or not, you probably heard about some of the controversy that surrounded the ending. If you've heard about this, you know that the first place winner, uh, his name was Maximum Security. That horse actually didn't end up winning the Derby. He was disqualified about 20 minutes after the race was finished. And the reason being is the horse jumped out of his lane just a little bit. And some people said it was an accident. It couldn't be helped. His jockey said that the horse was young and he got spooked. And so that's why he did it. And he tried to correct it as soon as he could. And whether you disagreed with the call or not to disqualify the first place horse, what ended up happening is a second place horse named Country House, he ended up being awarded the winner of the Kentucky Derby with maximum security being disqualified. And what stood out to me was the emotion that you saw as soon as the derby finished, as soon as the race was over. Because the rider, the jockey of maximum security, as soon as he won, he was pumping his fist in the air, he was celebrating, he was excited. Here's a picture of him celebrating on his horse. And he was just so thrilled to win the Kentucky Derby. In fact, they brought up a commentator or a reporter to come and interview him while he was still on the horse. And the guy asked him, the, the jockey, he said, how do you feel right now? And the jockey he said, I have dreamed my entire life of winning the Kentucky Derby. I mean, he was just ecstatic and so excited. 
But then 20 minutes later, you see a picture of the jockey and his owner, and they're side by side, and you can just see how discouraged they are, how disappointed they are. Here's a picture of them as they hear the results that their horse has been disqualified and they're not going to win the Kentucky Derby after all. You saw both sides of emotion there. You saw the full range of emotion in just a few minutes. And then there was also some more emotion going on. The winner of the Kentucky Derby, or the declared winner, was in the second place horse, Country House. And even though he won, and his owners and trainer and jockey, they were all excited. Still, when you saw him being awarded the grand prize, they, their excitement seemed a little subdued because they had dreamed as well as always winning the Kentucky Derby, but yet it was as if their win was tainted. It wasn't exactly what they thought it would be. As I watched all that emotion in the 20 minutes after the race was finished, I kind of thought, you know, doesn't that illustrate how life is? See, I know that this ending to the Derby was unusual. This isn't typically how the Derby ends. But, you know, I think this ending illustrates what a lot of us have experienced at times in life. Some of us, we have chased after something our entire lives, hoping that that something would bring us satisfaction, bring us contentment in life, bring us peace, only to get it and to realize one of two things. One, either that satisfaction we received was short-lived, it was here one moment and gone the very next, or the satisfaction we got from this thing that we worked so hard to get wasn't what we thought it would be. All of us have probably been there before. We thought if we just got that job, or if we just could live in that house, or if we could just be in that neighborhood, or if we could date that person, or marry that person, and have kids with that person, or if we could make the team, or have this much money in our bank account, you name it, then we'd be happy. Then we'd be satisfied. Then we would be content. Only to find out you can have all those things and still feel extremely empty on the inside. It reminds me a lot of Solomon's words in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 11. He writes, but as I looked at everything I worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. Let me ask, you ever felt that way? You ever felt like that? I have on more than one occasion. And Jesus knew that we would feel like that as long as we looked for life in all the wrong places. And that's one of the primary reasons why he came. He states in John 10, verse 10, I came to give life, life in all its fullness. See, Jesus doesn't want us just to live any type of life. He wants us to live life to the fullest. And so let me ask, is that the kind of life you're living right now? I mean, honestly, life to the fullest, does that describe the life that you're living right now? If not, maybe it's because you've been looking for life in all the wrong places. Because the Bible teaches us, it tells us, that the only way to live a truly satisfied life is to do life Jesus' way. And that's why here at First Church, we're a community of Jesus followers who partner together to do life Jesus' way. And what exactly does that look like? Well, when you study and examine the life of Jesus, what you discover is that Jesus lived, uh, lived a life of perfect spiritual balance. He lived in constant relationship with his heavenly Father. He lived in community with others who also wanted a relationship with God. And then he lived on mission. He unleashed God's love on the world. And he kept a perfect balance of those three things. 
And so we here at First Church, we want to do the same. We want to be a church where we partner with one another, you with me and me with you, to pursue Jesus, grow together, and unleash love. Pursue, grow, unleash. We're convinced that that's what it takes to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be part of his church. And that's how we will change Northeast Oklahoma and beyond. And we believe those three elements, pursue, grow, unleash, are a great gauge to, I guess, to look at our spiritual life and make sure that we're growing the way that we need to be growing. Because we believe a balanced spiritual life leads to a satisfied life. And one way that we like to illustrate this discipleship strategy that we want everybody in our church to be a part of is with the image of a triangle, with pursue being on top, pursue Jesus, and then living in community, growing together in one angle, and the other angle being unleashing love. That's our mission element. And so in week one of this series, we talked about what it means to pursue Jesus with all of our hearts. And last week, we discussed what it means to do life together with close Christian friends, spiritual friends who will hold us accountable and push us along and give us encouragement when we need it, and we can do the same for them. But today we're going to look at this last angle of the triangle, which is unleash love. We're called to be a people who unleash God's love on those around us. And this final angle of our triangle, really, I believe it's the deep end of the pool. Honestly, I'm not sure if it gets much deeper than that. See, sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, you know, Chad, I really want to go deeper in my faith. And so they ask me what they need to do, and normally my response catches them off guard because I answer the same way every single time somebody asks me, how do I go deeper in my faith? I'll look at them and I'll say, that's great that you want to go deeper. Who are you serving? And they look at me kind of odd, like, what? Because I think they expect me to say, hey, you need to read this book, or you need to study this passage of Scripture, or you need to do these ten things in order to go deeper in your faith. And the question I ask is, who are you serving? Now, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand me. I believe that we need to pursue Jesus intellectually. We can't follow one we don't know. So I believe we do need to know who he is and understand his teachings. Don't get me wrong. But here's the thing, following Jesus isn't just about knowing who he is and knowing what he taught. It's about living like him. And the closer we get to Jesus, the more we act like Jesus. Following Jesus isn't just an intellectual pursuit. It's not agreeing with a list of doctrines, but it's actually implementing those teachings in our lives to where we actually live like him. Jesus wants us to take the life that he's multiplied in us and multiply it in others. And the tool that Jesus has given us to do that, it's love. John 13, 35, Jesus says, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And that's why everywhere Jesus went, he showed people that friendship with God is possible. That no matter what your story may be, no matter where you've been, no matter your background, no matter how much you've messed up, no matter what current state of life you're in, restoration with God is possible. There is a path back to Him that you can take. Friendship with God is possible. You are loved by Him and He wants you to come back to Him. And so since it's Mother's Day, I thought it would be appropriate for us to look at a woman who met Jesus who desperately needed to experience God's love. And not only did she experience it, she turned around and unleashed it 
on others. And her story is found in John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app on your phone or tablet, go ahead and look up with me John chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today. If you have our First Church app, you can follow along there as well. The scripture will be listed in our app. But we're going to look at this woman that Jesus went out of his way to show love to. And here's the context. Here's what's going on, basically. It's early on in Jesus' ministry, and Jesus traveling with his disciples from the region of Judea to Galilee in Palestine. And Judea is in the south, Galilee is in the north, and in verse 4 of chapter 4, we get this little detail. It says, now he, speaking of Jesus, now he had to go through Samaria. Now that statement may not seem that odd to us reading this with our 21st century eyes because if you look at a map of Palestine, what you will quickly discover is that Judea is in the south, Galilee is in the north, sandwiched between these two areas is the region known as Samaria, so it makes sense. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. He had to go through Samaria. It makes perfect sense unless you are a first century Jew because a first century Jew would have heard those words that I just read and said, uh, no, he doesn't have to go through Samaria. See, the Jews, they hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. There was real racial tension, political tension, social tension between these two groups of people. There was intense animosity between these two people groups. They did not like one another. So a first century Jew would not dare travel through Samaria. They would intentionally go around Samaria to get from Judea to Galilee and Galilee to Judea. That's how all the Jews in this day traveled. That's how they went back and forth to these two areas. So a first century Jew hearing these words, he had to go through Samaria. They said, no he doesn't. There's a better road. There's a safer road. The road that everybody else takes. So why does this passage say Jesus had to go through Samaria when no other Jew would have gone through Samaria. Well, apparently there was something drawing him there. And that something was actually a someone. It was a Samaritan woman. A Samaritan woman who had a past. The Bible tells us she had been married five different times and the man she was currently living with wasn't her husband. This was a woman who had been in a lot of bedrooms. This was a woman who was the subject of gossips and busybodies all throughout her village. This was a woman who people whispered about behind her back. This was a woman with a reputation. Her life is a mess. And yet she apparently is the reason why Jesus had to travel through Samaria. You know why? Because over and over again, when we study the life of Jesus, we find out that Jesus has a heart for those who are far from God. And his mission was to seek them out. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He sought them out. Jesus wanted everyone to know that friendship with God is possible. And so that's exactly what he does. So Jesus is traveling through Samaria, and he stops by outside of this little village known as Sychar. And there's a well there, and he decides to rest because it's the middle of the day. It's hot. He's tired. They've been journeying a lot of miles. He's worn out and hungry, thirsty. And so he decides to rest by this little well outside of this village called Sychar. And he tells his disciples, you guys go into the village, buy some food, bring it back out. We'll eat together and then get on our way. We'll rest for a little while. So the disciples go into the village, and while they're gone, Jesus is at this well by himself, and that's when verse 7 tells us a Samaritan woman came to draw water. 
Now, I want you to pause right there again because, again, we're reading this with 21st century eyes, and so I think we miss the shock value of what's going on here. Remember what time of day I said it was. It's the middle of the day. It's high noon. It's in the heat of the day, and this community well was outside of their city. You did not go draw water in the middle of the day. It was too hot. Water's heavy to carry. It's hard to maneuver. You did not go in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, in order to get water. The women of a village were responsible for getting water for their families, and they would go in the early morning hours or the evening hours when it was cooler. You did not go in the heat of the day. And not only that, when the women would go to get water, they did not go by themselves. They always traveled in groups because remember, this well is outside of the village. There could be bandits, thieves, robbers, people trying to cause trouble. They would not dare travel outside of their village, outside the safety of their village on their own. You would always travel in large groups so that you could protect yourself. And yet this woman is going the heat of the day when no one else goes to get water. And she's all alone. She has to have reasons for doing so. And her reasons are pretty simple. We know her past. And she's probably tired of getting odd looks and stares. She's probably tired of people whispering about her behind her back. She's probably tired of people trying to avoid her. So she goes on the offensive and she's going to avoid them. And day after day, she avoids everyone she possibly can until the day comes when she meets Jesus. And so she starts to draw water. She probably tries to ignore Jesus, doesn't acknowledge him, doesn't make eye contact with him. She starts to draw water because she's traveled this far to do it. And as she's drawing water, Jesus speaks up and asks her a question. Verse 7, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Now again, don't miss just how shocking this question would have been. Not only did Samaritans and Jews hate one another, and so they did not talk. If they saw each other in public, they went the opposite direction. Not only did they hate one another, men and women did not talk to one another in public. Husbands did not even speak to their wives in public. So here we have a Samaritan woman who has this interaction with a Jewish man, and he speaks to her. That was unheard of. That did not happen. If Jesus, uh, if Jesus was telling the story again after it happened and there were first century Jews listening to it, they would have gasped out loud, oh, you didn't do that. That was unheard of. It was a cultural no-no. But not only that, Jesus asked her something specific. He says, can you give me a drink? And we find out Jesus doesn't have a cup to drink from, so basically what he's saying is, can I drink from your cup? A proper Jew would not touch anything that had been handled by a Samaritan, let alone drink from a cup that had been handled by a Samaritan woman would not have happened. I know that may sound kind of odd to us today. Some of you guys may drink after one another and not think anything about it whatsoever. But some of you in this room, and some of you have been at Stone Canyon, you guys probably remember a sad, sad day in our country, our country's history, when certain races weren't allowed to drink after one another. That racial tension that our country experienced years ago, we're so grateful that, that we've moved beyond that now, But that racial tension that our country experienced so many years ago, multiply that by a dozen or more. That's the day that Jesus lives in. That's the tension that exists between Samaritans and Jews. And yet, Jesus says, can I have a drink of water? Can I drink from your cup? And I think this woman is shocked, and that's why she responds the way she does. If you want to pick up with me in John 4, verse 9, if you want to read along, Look and see what happens. 
And it says, the Samaritan woman said to him, to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I love her reaction because this woman is not a pushover. She's lived a rough life. She's lived a hard life. And so she basically says, what are you doing? Why are you asking me this? Don't you know this isn't right? What's your game here? What are you trying to get at? What are you trying to accomplish exactly? Why are you asking me for a drink of water? And she kind of snaps at Jesus. And what I love about Jesus is Jesus doesn't snap back. Jesus doesn't respond in kind. Instead, he uses this moment as an opportunity to invite this very broken woman to live for something better. Jesus is inviting her to live for something more. And here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus didn't just live on mission. He never went off mission. Jesus never missed an opportunity to unleash God's love. And so that's why he continues to talk to this woman about living water. Basically what he's offering her is a chance to live a new life. A new life with lasting satisfaction. A new life with eternal purpose. A new life where she can feel meaning and she can feel value. And so Jesus talks to her about this living water, and she doesn't quite understand what he's talking about. She thinks he's talking about physical water. He's talking about spiritual water. We understand her confusion, so Jesus goes on to explain it a little bit more. Verse verse 13 says, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. I'm sure he's pointing to the well at this point. Everybody who drinks this water in this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus goes on to explain what he's talking about, but the woman still isn't getting it, and so Jesus just decides to jump to the heart of the matter, what's really going on. Pick up with me if you would in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. See, why does Jesus say, go call your husband? Well, maybe now he's following the social norms of the day to where he needs to speak to him. I don't think so. I think Jesus knew exactly what this woman was hiding And he knew that God can't heal what we hide. So he wants to bring everything to the surface in this moment. And did you notice her response? This woman has started to carry on a conversation with Jesus. She's been chatty Cathy up until this point. And then all of a sudden Jesus says, go call your husband. And you notice her quick and brief response? I have no husband. Four words in English. In Greek, it's only three words. She's brief. I have no husband. She's embarrassed. Because she knows her true self is getting ready to be found out. The cat is getting ready to come out of the bag. And when Jesus finds out who she is, he's not going to want, he's not going to want to have anything to do with her. And Jesus says, yep, you're right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you've had five husbands and the man you're now living with, you're not even married to. Now, this was the moment when most people would walk away from this woman. This was the moment when the condescending looks began. This was the moment when the whisper started. This was the moment when people would scold her or criticize her or condemn her. 
But yet Jesus does none of that. Jesus knows her. He knows her past. He knows what she's been through. He knows her current life situation. He seems to know everything about her, and yet he doesn't go anywhere. Instead, he stands there with her, treats her like a human being, like a daughter of God, and continues to talk to her about living water, about living a new life. And I think this makes this woman feel very uncomfortable. She's not used to men treating her like that. And so she realizes, okay, this guy is somebody special. I've never met him yet. He knows me better than most people do. How does he know all this? He's got to be a prophet sent from God. And so she decides to change the subject. Don't we do that when we get uncomfortable? We like to change the subject. We like to take a detour real quick to take the attention off us. I have that happen a lot when people find out that I'm a preacher. You know, they'll be talking to me about whatever, sports, the weather, or whatever. And then all of a sudden they find out that I'm a preacher and immediately they want to change the subject from what we were talking about because they're afraid that I may I guess ask them something that makes them feel uncomfortable I don't do that I mean I'm just a real guy who wants to talk to real people about real things but yet that's how some people react and so they want to change the subject and say well what do you think about this Supreme Court decision or what do you think about what's going on in the news and they want to talk about something else that doesn't directly involve them and that's what this woman does she starts to ask Jesus some theological questions thinking I'll take the attention off myself and you know what Jesus does he plays her game. He says, okay, if you want to talk about this, we'll talk about this. And so Jesus starts to talk about what she wants to talk about. They have the conversation. And they talk about it for a while until they get to the point where this woman feels like, okay, I've distracted him enough from me that now I can move on. And look at what she says in verse 25. The woman said to Jesus, I know that Messiah, called the Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. You ever had a theological debate with somebody, a biblical debate, and you guys don't agree, and so at the end of the conversation you just say, okay, well, when we all get to heaven, then we'll know, then we'll understand, and that's kind of a way just to end the conversation, right? Let's stop talking about it. That's what this woman is doing. She is dismissing Jesus as if, okay, I've heard your opinion, it's great, I've got my opinion. When the Messiah comes, when God's anointed one from heaven comes and rescues us all, then he will explain all things to us. Nice meeting you, sir. I'm going to go back to my village now. And as she turns to walk away, verse 26 says, Then Jesus declared to her, I who speak to you am he. In other words, the Messiah that you're waiting for, the one that you hope will come and make all things right, the one that you're longing for, God's anointed one from heaven, you're looking at him. And I think this is a powerful moment because of what happens next. Read on, jump down with me if you would to verse 28 and look at how this woman responds when she finds out who Jesus is. Verse 28 says, Then leaving her water jar, leaving her water jar behind, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ, the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Now, why does she respond like this? Why does she go back to her village, to her town, and say, hey, come meet a guy who knows everything I've ever done? 
I mean, this was the same woman who just a little while ago wanted to hide her past, wanted to hide her true identity. She was trying to avoid everyone in her village, and now she goes back to the very people she's been trying to avoid, the very people who have gossiped about her, the very people who have hurt her. And she says, you need to come meet this man who knows more about me than you know about me. What changed? She met the Messiah. And the Messiah told her that she could have living water. That somebody as broken as she is could have new life because God loves her. See, what I want you to understand is that in this culture, women could not initiate divorce. Only men could. So wrap your minds around what this woman has experienced during her lifetime. Five different men, for whatever reason, have told her, we don't want you. Five different men have kicked her out. Five different men have said, we're done with you, we don't love you. Imagine how this woman sees herself. I'm sure she doesn't have a great self-image. That's probably why she's now living with a man that she expects no commitment from. Her entire life, people have gossiped about her. Her entire life, people have whispered about her behind her back. She's been labeled over and over again. Her life has been a mess, and I'm sure she has thought more than once, no one wants anything to do with somebody like me, especially God. Why would God want to have anything to do with someone like me? And she's probably believed that for years until she meets Jesus. Now she's looking at the Messiah face to face. She's looking at the Son of God face to face, and He's not going anywhere. He's not running from her. He's not avoiding her. He's not condemning her. He's not criticizing her. He's not whispering about her or labeling her. No, instead, he's offering her something better. Jesus is offering her life. And that's why I love the line in this passage, verse 28, when it says, then leaving her water jar, leaving her water jar behind. I want you to notice this. She came for a jar full of water, but left with a heart full of life. She leaves her jar behind, meaning whatever agenda she had prior to meeting Jesus is out the window. Everything has now changed because she met Jesus. She came for water, but left with life. She left with so much more. And she was changed. And I believe the reason why she went back to her village and sought out the very people she'd been trying to avoid is because she knew she wasn't the only broken person in town. She knew everyone needed to experience this life that Jesus had offered her. You've probably heard the saying before, hurt people hurt people. And I think that is so true. Hurt people do hurt people. There are times that people have been just very mean to me and hateful to me, even Christian people at times. And I wonder, why? I haven't done anything to you. I'm just trying to serve Jesus. Why? And then I hear something about their background. And I'm like, oh, hurt people hurt people. You've probably heard that before. But I have a friend who constantly reminds me that, yes, hurt people do hurt people, but healed people people help people healed people help people and that's the gospel guys when you've been changed by Jesus you can't help but want to see that change in others when you've experienced the love of God you can't help but want others to experience that love as well this Samaritan woman didn't need an organized mission trip to unleash God's love she didn't need a program or an organized activity to unleash God's love. She didn't even need a set special offering to unleash God's love. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things. All she needed was a person. A person who was broken, who needed healing, who was willing to listen. 
And so she went to whoever she could and took advantage of the opportunity at hand in order to show people the love that Jesus has showed her. And you know what? That's what happens when you truly live in the love of Jesus every single day. See, living on mission every single day for God, unleashing his love and daily life, it's the natural result of walking with Jesus because the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you start to act like him and the better your life will be. And the better we know Jesus, the more we'll multiply in others the life he's multiplied in us. And that's what ends up happening in the life of this Samaritan woman. Pick up with me, if you would, verse 39. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him and Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Guys, the entire village comes to know Jesus. And I believe what happened in that Samaritan village is exactly what God wants to see happen in every town and every city across our globe. I believe what happened in that Samaritan village is exactly what God wants to see happen right here in Owasso and out at Stone Canyon and across northeast Oklahoma and beyond. I believe God wants us to take the life that he's multiplied in us and multiply it in others. See, we're not just supposed to come to church. We're supposed to be the church. Following Jesus isn't just about knowing his teachings. It's about living like him. And that's why I said earlier that I believe that this is the deep stuff. Because I know churches right now where they stand up and they preach and teach the truth Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And they teach it pretty well. But they're not unleashing love on a daily basis. And to me, that's the sign of a shallow church. Because a deep church is one that takes what we know about Jesus, we apply it to our lives, and we live like him. That's why in our discipleship strategy, this triangle that I've been putting up on the screen, we have saved unleashed love for last. Because it starts with pursuing him, then you live in community so that you have, a, so you have friends who will help you grow in Jesus and then the final step that you take is unleashing love because that's the deep stuff. And at this point in the life of Jesus' disciples in John chapter 4, his closest friends, his closest disciples, they're not quite there yet. See, I left out a verse on purpose when we were studying this because before this woman goes back to her town, her village, to tell everybody about this man named Jesus, the disciples approach they approach Jesus and this woman talking, and you know what their immediate reaction is? They didn't dare say it to him because they were afraid they might get criticized for doing it, but they wanted to say it. In John 4, verse 27, they wanted to ask, why are you talking with her? Notice their reaction was, oh, he's talking to somebody who's broken and needs healing. Oh, he's talking with somebody who needs to experience the love of God. No, their first reaction is, why are you talking to someone like her? And over and over again, we see this pattern in the life of Jesus. Jesus hangs out with prostitutes and tax collectors and rebels and other notorious sinners. And every time he does, the religious crowd looks at him and they say, why are you hanging out with such scum? See, that's why unleashing God's love is the deep stuff. Because you can know all the right answers in your head. 
and not live it out in your life. When we lived in Kentucky before we moved here, we had neighbors across the street. They've since moved. They don't live on that street anymore either, but they would call themselves snowbirds because they would spend uh, the winters in Florida and they would spend the summers in Kentucky. So they would enjoy the warmth of both places basically. But here's the thing, when they were gone during the winter months to Florida, if you drove down our street in the middle of the night or uh, in the evening time, you would never know they were gone. You know why? Because they had these things on all their lights throughout their house. This is a timer. Some of you guys may have these in your home for security reasons. Maybe when you put up Christmas lights, you put them on timers, you know, so they go come on and go off automatically. And so you can set this timer to whatever time you want to come on and go off. And they had their lights on timers all over their house. So if you were just casually driving down our street when they were gone, you would think somebody was home. And they'd have different lights coming on at different times. They did that on purpose because they wanted to have the appearance of life even though no one was home. And honestly, sadly, I think that describes a whole lot of churches. Like clockwork. They go through the motions of religion. And they come to services, and they sing the songs, they listen to the sermon, they take communion, they do what they think is required of them to look religious. But the life that Jesus wants them to share isn't there. There's a church like that in Scripture. In Revelation 3, verse 1, Jesus speaks to the church at Sardis, and he says, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. You look like you're alive, but really you're dead. It could happen. And that's not our church. That's not First Church, but I don't ever want it to be either. I don't ever want us to be a church that just goes through the motions, that just shows up and like clockwork. Hang on here a second. Three, two, one... The lights come on, but no one's home. And what I mean by that, we have the appearance of life, but we're not unleashing that life on the people around us. Guys, we're here for a purpose. And Jesus wants the life that he's given us to be multiplied in others. Guys, what if we did everything possible so that others could experience the love of Jesus? If we really believed his life was the best life, I think we would. See, following Jesus, walking with him, expands our capacity to love. And if you want to go deeper, here's the key. Love like Jesus. You really can't go much deeper than that. Are you willing to say yes to doing life his way? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the example you've given us in Jesus, your son, of how to live. And Father, we know that not only did he live in perfect harmony with you and he lived in community with others so that he could allow them to grow in that community. Father, he also unleashed love every single day and we're called to do the same. Father, may we not be a church where the lights are on but no one's home when it comes to the life that you've given us. But Father, may that life flow out from us May it overflow so that others get to experience the life that you want to give the world. We thank you so much for Jesus. He's the reason why we live every single day. And it's through his powerful name that I pray. Amen.